0: I got the mic on now? There we go. I'm glad there's only a few of you here this morning because that means only half the church gets to hear my voice crack. <laughs> on Friday night, youth, well, on Friday night, on Friday I was in here in the morning, I was practicing the sermon, my voice was fine, and then like 10 minutes before youth started, I started to realize, oh no, my voice is not going to last through running Bible Trivia Jeopardy. So I called Brett and said, Brett, can you be my Aaron? <laughs> I'm Moses and I can't speak. Can you, can you talk for me? So I won't ask him to come up today and, and, and do this. But uh, let's, let's, let's pray for our service. I'm gonna pray for my voice and uh, pray for our service this morning before I continue. Father in heaven, you are, are gracious and good and you have shown your faithfulness in so many ways to every single one of us. Thank you for the, those of us that are here this morning that were able to make it through the snow, and I pray that for those of our family who are at home or elsewhere, that you would draw near to them today and that you remind them of your faithfulness. I pray also for my voice, Lord, that you would preserve it for the preaching of your word. Yes, this is in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're diving into the, back into the story of Israel in the book of Exodus. Last week, Pastor Darren led us through the book of Genesis to show us how the story of Adam, Noah, and Abraham was setting the stage for Leviticus, the book that we're going to spend more time on through the next few weeks instead of just fly over the whole thing in one Sunday morning. Um because we're planning to go into Leviticus, this wild book where, as Darren said last week, where Bible reading plans go to die. (sighs) And you know, it's funny, if we laugh at that, because jokes are often funny because they're true. And it's funny to us that Leviticus is the book where Bible reading plans go to die, because to us, when we get there, it's, it's boring. On the surface, that's true, it is, it is boring. Why do I need to know how to sacrifice a goat? I don't sacrifice goats anymore, and I'm pretty sure Jesus said that we don't need to do that anymore. But you see, I think there is another reason that we often avoid Leviticus, and even a huge swath of the Old Testament. Because we have been told, maybe not explicitly, but in jest, or by the attitude of some people, that the first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament, are not that important. And maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've heard someone say that the law of Israel doesn't apply to the church at all, or that the blessings and curses are for Israel only, or even, and this is a direct quote from a very prominent evangelical pastor, that the apostles Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures. Essentially, the apostles, the chosen leaders of the church of God, chosen by Christ, decided to take the new people of God, the church, and start a new people with new commands, new purpose, and new leaders, new forefathers, an entirely new people of God. Therefore, the Jews are still God's people, and the Old Testament doesn't apply to us. And I know that for myself, I prefer the New Testament, and I have for many years because of this mentality that's deep in my bones. In fact, when you look at this Bible that I use every day, that I got only a few short years ago, if you look at the side of it, I'm ashamed to tell you this, but if you look at the side of it, you can almost tell where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. I can literally look at where it's a little bit more not white, and open right to Matthew. And it's not good. (laughs) So before we dive into Exodus though, I want to show you what the New Testament has to say about the Old Testament, and show you that the Old Testament still applies to us in many ways. First, this will come up again as we go into Exodus, but in Exodus 19, starting at verse three, it says that Moses went up the mountain at Sinai and the Lord called to him and said, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now there's a lot in that section, but God just said to Moses that the Israelites are chosen among the people of the earth, and yet all the earth is God's. They are to be a nation of priests, not just the Levites. But the whole nation. They are to be holy and set apart. Now, with the mentality that many of us have towards the Old Testament, you might think that's great. They are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, but they were the Jews, and we are the church. And yet, Peter says to the new church in 1 Peter 2 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, we are God's people. Peter equates the calling of God to the Israelites to be a holy nation, with the church by saying that we too are a nation of royal priests. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the apostles talk about how the church is grafted in to the vine of Abraham. We're grafted in to the people of God, the same vine that the Israelites, the faithful Israelites were a part of. Also, in the the Old Testament, it was the Old Testament moral law standard That Jesus upheld to be the perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. It was the Old Testament law that Jesus upheld. And when it comes to Jesus' ministry, he held everyone else to that standard of God's law given through Moses. He condemned the Pharisees for not following the law correctly. He told the rich young ruler that in order to be perfect, he had to keep the last six of the Ten Commandments, omitting the first four because he knew that when he asked him to sell all of his possessions, he was going to find out, the rich young was going to find out that he worshipped money more than he worshipped God and that, that money was an idol to him. That was the standard that God, or that Jesus set before him. Even with the woman caught in adultery in John 8, even though Jesus does not condemn the woman according to the law, which is true, Yet when he tells her to go, he tells her to leave her life of sin. Well, what tells us what what te- what is sin? What tells us what sin is? Paul tells us in Romans that the law reveals to us what sin is. The law cannot make us law keepers, but the law reveals to us what sin is. And so as we go through Exodus and as we go into Leviticus in the next few weeks, we are gonna see that I'm not gonna tell us that we need to go out and find somebody who has goats and we need to start slaughtering goats, but there is still part of the Old Testament law that we need to pay attention to. Even the ceremonial part of slaughtering goats and sheep, there is a purpose to it. There is an image there that God still wants us to know and understand as the new church, as his new people. And so with that in mind, Let's continue this story this morning in Exodus 1. Exodus 1 opens by reminding us what happened at the end of Genesis. Jacob and his sons, their families, had all traveled to Egypt to be with their brother Joseph, who had saved them from a famine. The Israelites were given the land of Goshen, which would have been a sub region of, of Egypt. Okay, if you've been to Regina, okay, and you know. How Regina is laid out a little bit. I had to look for a town close by that I could use as a, an illustration for this, because where I grew up in Abbotsford, any city around would make sense for this illustration. But Swift Current, I don't think, has this, so we went with Regina. Okay? If you've been to Regina and you know there's different sections of Regina, okay, there's like Albert Park on the south side, and there's Glen Cairn kind of on the east side. That would be what Goshen was in this region of Egypt where the capital of Egypt was was. Okay, it was a sub region very close to where the Egyptians were. And so in Exodus one, verse one to seven, it tells us that when the Israelites settled there, there were seventy of them in total. But over the next four hundred years, they were fruitful and increased greatly in number. And by the time the Israelites leave, in Exodus 1237, in Exodus 1237, when they're leaving for the Exodus, it tells us that 600,000 men left Egypt. 600,000 men, plus women and children. So they, for whatever reason, they counted the men, but they didn't count the women and children. So that means that over 400 years, the Israelites went from 70 people to over likely a million. That's significant. And so that sets the stage for us because in verse eight of chapter one, it tells us that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, I've heard Jews say that this is one of the most significant verses in all of the book of Exodus. And the reason for it is because it was an Israelite that saved Egypt and saved the whole world from famine. And this new pharaoh did not even know that what these Israelites, what their ancestor had done for them. And this is partially why, for us, knowing our history is so important. Now, remember, in 400 years, these Israelites had multiplied to over a million people. It's an average of five-ish kids per family. And who knows how many Egyptians there were? But at the very least, the population was growing so fast, fast enough that Pharaoh was worried that he and his people would be overthrown by the Israelites, completely forgetting that Israel was there because they were invited, and they were there because they had saved Egypt and the surrounding area. And so this leads Pharaoh to enslave the people in order to keep them from having babies. He thinks if we put them into slavery, they won't have time to have kids, but it doesn't work. Verse 12 says that the more they were oppressed, the more that they multiplied. I'm sure there's something to be said about COVID and there's a generation called the baby boomers, but we won't get into that, okay? The more they were oppressed, the more that they multiplied. And so then, Pharaoh has to change his plan because this is clearly not working and he's getting more and more nervous. And so he calls to himself two midwives and tells them that any Hebrew woman who has a boy, they must kill him. As soon as the baby comes out of the womb, it's a boy, kill him. Because we can't have men being raised up because it's the men that's going to overthrow me and my kingdom if they do. And this leads us to chapter 2 where we're introduced to Moses. Moses was born, obviously, to a Hebrew woman during the time that Pharaoh was afraid of losing his power and was trying to kill all of the babies, all of the male babies. And I wanna pause here for a second and make a connection for you. Throughout the Bible, there are people that emerge as what are called types for Jesus. By that, I do not mean that they are Jesus, But major part of these people's lives reflect the ultimate savior that was to come, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to Moses, he is a type for Jesus in many ways. There are going to be more connections as we go through, but let me tie what we have touched on already together for you. Israel was in Egypt for 400 years with no sign, direction, or word from God before Moses was born, left, and came back. There was no word from God for 400 years. Israel, after the close of the Old Testament with the narrative of Esther and the prophecy of Malachi, went 400 years without sign, direction, or word from God before the birth of Jesus. Moses was born at a time when the leader of Egypt was afraid of being overthrown and so tried to kill all the baby males to save his kingdom. Moses is saved by being removed from the Hebrews and growing up in the court of Pharaoh. Jesus is born, and upon being told by some wise men that the king of the Jews had been born, the king at that time decides to kill all the baby boys in and around Bethlehem in order to not be overthrown. Jesus is saved from this by being removed from among his people in Israel and fleeing to Egypt. So already we can see what God is setting up with the Exodus story. Now as a quick aside, some people look at these comparisons between Jesus and Moses and go clearly Moses, because we know know for sure that Jesus existed, we know he existed, but clearly Moses was made up around Jesus. People took parts of Jesus' life and they made up Moses. Now, if you ever want to look at something interesting, look up the comparisons between Abraham Lincoln and uh, JFK, okay? Two presidents in the United States, each about 100 years apart. And if you look at the comparisons between them, I'm gonna try and tell you some of them off the top of my head, they were both born in the same year, in in the 1800s and in the 1900s, they both were elected to the Senate in the same year, in the 1800s and the 1900s. Okay? Both of them were shot in the back of the head, in the presence of their wives. Okay? Both of their assassinators had three names, and each of them had the same amount of letters. The one assassin of Lincoln went from the theater and ran to a warehouse. The assassin of JFK ran from the warehouse to a theater. Okay. Lincoln was shot in the Fords, I think it was the Ford's Theater, and JFK was shot in a Lincoln car manufactured by Ford. Okay? Now, we all know that both of those guys existed. But by reasoning the same way that we reason for Moses not being real, we could reason that Abraham Lincoln wasn't real because of all of these comparisons. Okay, so I just want to set that out for you. If you really want something interesting, go look up. There's like a whole longer list more of that. Anyways, in Exodus 2, after Moses is saved by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in Pharaoh's house, he flees from his people into Midian, which is across the Sinai Desert. Even, it's a little bit further east than Israel. After defending his true people, the Hebrews. And it's finally at this point, while Moses is gone, that God speaks to his people again at the burning bush. And God chooses Moses to save his people from slavery and bondage. This happens in chapter three. God reveals to Moses while he's tending to sheep and calls him out of his occupation to save God's people. In verse seven and eight, God says that he has seen the affliction of his people in Egypt and he has heard their cry. He says that he knows their sufferings and that he has come to deliver them to a land of promise, to a place flowing with milk and honey. Now, a quick note that we'll come back to. The description that God gives of the promised land mirrors Eden. Okay, He's he's going to call them back to dwell with him. He's going to bring them back to Eden. Eden, to the promised land. At least, that was the idea. Moses then asks who he should say God is, that is calling his people out. And God says, I am who I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is something that Jesus claims of himself in the book of John. He's in dispute with the Jews, and they say, who are you? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, some people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. And yet when he says this in the book of John, he says, before Abraham was, I am, the Jews pick up stones to stone Jesus because they recognize that he just claimed to be God, which if he's not, is blasphemy and he should be stoned. But Jesus was God and should not have been stoned. Yet they tried and Jesus got away. Okay. God tells Moses in verse 19 that he know of chapter 3 that he knows that the the king of Egypt will not let the people go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And this is an important point for the story because over the next few chapters Moses goes back to Egypt, meets his brother Aaron, and starts demanding that Pharaoh let God's people go. And as God said, Pharaoh refuses over and over and over again, which starts the process of the 10 plagues of the Egyptians. Now, at the end of every plague, it says one of two things. It says either God hardens Pharaoh's heart or Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And there's some debate and some question as to why this is. Many question why. Here's part of the reason. God was not just going to come and take his people out of Egypt. He was going to put the evil of Egypt to open shame and destroy it as he brought his people out. Here's what I mean. Every single one of the ten plagues that God sends on Egypt is to put one of Egypt's main gods to shame. One of the main gods that the Egyptians worshipped to shame. God was going to show his people that he, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was more powerful than any other so-called God. And the great I am that I am was the one true God. And Israel was to follow him. So here we go. The ten plagues. I'm going to go through these rapid fire. First one, the water of the Nile turned to blood. The Egyptian god, Hapi, was the god of the Nile and I'm sure the Egyptians prayed to Hapi and asked him to turn the water back into water and nothing could be done. Second plagues, frogs came out of the Nile and filled the land. Heket was the goddess of fertility, water and renewal and was depicted with a frog's head and she was powerless to do anything. Nats from the dust of the earth was the third plague and Geb was the god of the earth. The fourth plague was the swarms of fly and Kepri was the god of creation and was depicted with the head of a fly. The fifth plague was the death of cattle and livestock. Hathor, goddess of love and protection, was depicted with the head of a cow. The sixth plague, the Egyptian people were afflicted with boils and sores that could not be cured. Isis was the goddess of medicine and peace. The, f- the seventh plague, hail and fire rained down from the sky. Nut was the goddess of the sky. Locusts sent from the sky was the eighth plague. Seth, the god of storms and disorder, could not stop it. The ninth plague, complete darkness for three days. Ra, the chief god of the sun was nowhere to be seen. In the 10th plague, the final plague, the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh himself was considered a god and was even thought to be the son of Ra himself. Pharaoh was powerless to stop the death of his firstborn. In all of these cases, all of these gods were powerless in the face of the one true God. God put them all to open shame. Now I told you that Moses was a type for Jesus and I've shown you up until this point of Jesus being saved from death as a baby, fleeing to Egypt. But Moses and Jesus are both called right around the 400 year mark of silence from God. Moses comes to lead God's people out of slavery of Egypt towards the promised land. And what we learn from the New Testament writers is that Jesus came to lead God's people out of slavery to sin in order to lead them into the promised land. Back to Eden. Let me say it again. Just as Moses came to lead God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage, Jesus came from God to lead his people out of slavery to sin. And as we have seen, Moses did not just come and lead the people out. First, God put all evil, all powers and authorities to open shame. He showed that the gods of the Egyptians were nothing compared to him. Even if they were real or had been real at one time, they would have been created by God and were submitted to his power and authority. Jesus came to rebuke the powers of his day. He rebuked the Pharisees, he rebuked the scribes and the Sadducees, But not only that, Colossians 2.15 tells us that in Jesus' death on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. God, through Moses, put the gods of Egypt to open shame before saving his people. And Jesus, Jesus put it all to open shame. Every god that we might worship, He showed them powerless. And what was it throughout these plagues, these judgments, this condemning of sin and evil in Egypt under Moses? What was it that protected the people from the wrath and judgment of God he put on the rulers and authorities and sin and evil to open shame? What was it that protected the Israelites? Exodus 12. In Exodus 12, God instructs his people to take a lamb, to kill it, take its blood and paint it over the doorposts of your home. Shut the door. And as the Lord comes to enact his wrath, to enact his justice, to take the life of the firstborn in Egypt, when the Lord sees that blood on that door, he will pass over. He will not destroy anyone in that house John 129 John the Baptist sees Jesus far off coming towards him and John says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world Matthew 2626 26, during the passover during the passover this event in Exodus 12 as Jesus was remembering the thing that God did in Egypt for his people with the slaughtered lamb as their covering, so that God would pass over them. As Jesus was remembering this, the Passover feast with his disciples, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus introduces the new covenant feast of communion as a replacement for the fulfilled Passover. Jesus is about to go to the cross and become the Passover lamb. He is going to be the blood on the doorposts of our lives. And with his blood, we are going to be called out of Egypt. We're going to be called out of sin. And so we're going to do something different this morning. The sermon's not done. You might be looking at the clock going, man, we're done already? Nope. But we're going to pause here and take communion. We're going to observe this feast together. That the Lord instituted to remind us that his broken body and his spilled blood paid the debt of sin that we owe so that we could leave Egypt. We could leave the slavery to sin unscathed by God's wrath. So we'll invite the ushers forward and, and the worship team to come back up. And before I pray, I'll just let you know I was informed this morning that we do not have a gluten-free option for communion this morning, um, but we invite you to still partake of the cup with us this morning. So let's pray. Holy, gracious, powerful God, what a wonderful, joyous feast of remembrance that we come here today to observe and remember. You went to the cross. Your blood was spilt. You put sin, evil, powers and authorities to open shame in order to bring your people out of sin and on the road to the promised land thank you for this gift thank you for your sacrifice as we partake of this feast together proclaiming the salvation of the world until the renewal of all things at your final return may we take it with joy and thankfulness in our hearts in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior our Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. Some days I wonder what it would be like to have been a Jew at the time of Jesus that was part of the early church and was understanding these connections. Like that song that we just sung, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It might be funny to think about, but for a Jew, before Jesus, there would have been nothing but the blood of the Passover lamb. That was, that was what saved them at Passover. That was what they were supposed to remember. And what we're gonna see in part of Leviticus, or part of Exodus now and into Leviticus and over the next few weeks is that was all they had. That was all they were told they could do to be right with God was through the blood of a lamb or a goat or a ram or something like that and how amazing it is now to be able to sing nothing but the blood of Jesus sacrifice is done we don't need to bring Jesus in every Sunday and crucify him again as the Jews would have had to do with their lambs and their goats every day another sin gotta to go to the tabernacle gotta to go to the temple You've got to be right with God. It's done. It's finished. And we have communion to remind us. Instead of sacrificing an animal or sacrificing Jesus again, we take communion to remember that. And it's a wonderful thing. Continuing with the story of Exodus, we now look to what God does now. Remember that we're seeking to see from the story of Exodus in this overview. Why the law? Why the law in Exodus? Why the law in Leviticus? And why the law in Deuteronomy? Why is this the blueprint for our lives as Christians still today? What part of it? What are we supposed to understand from it today to live as disciple makers, as followers of Christ? Well, the Hebrews are finally let go from Egypt and Pharaoh tries to pursue them to get them, to bring them back. But God says, no. <laughs> and he drowns them in the Red Sea. He drowns the Egyptians and Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And throughout this episode, it is God's presence as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fl- fire by night that leads and protects the Israelites. When, they, when God opens the Red Sea after Moses sticks his staff in and parts of the Red Sea and the Israelites are going through. The Egyptians are right there. They're right on their tail. But God goes and creates a wall of fire around the Israelites so that the Egyptians cannot get to them. So the Egyptians are watching through this wall of fire as the Israelites are passing it through this water that's been parted and they're probably deliberating about themselves. Like, is, he, is Pharaoh gonna tell us to follow them? Like, are we gonna do that? And once all the Israelites are through and to the other side, the fire leaves, the Egyptians go through, and God collapses the Red Sea back on the Egyptians. God is their leader now. He is their protector. He's leading them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and he's protecting them with a wall of fire as needed. And so finally, in Exodus 19, we come to the beginning of the law of God. Darren talked last week about he could just picture the kids sitting at the foot of the mountain waiting for Moses to come down, and Moses is telling them the story of Exodus and, and, well, the story of Genesis and Exodus, and then he's giving them this law, this law that God has given them. And so the last few chapters of Exodus contain some narrative, but a lot of it is the first giving of part of God's law along with the directions for the building of the tabernacle. And this is going to melt into Leviticus. And then Moses is going to tell the people all the law again in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. But in Exodus 19, the people arrive at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to the mountain and is given the law by God. It is at this point in verse 6 that God tells the people through Moses that he's called them out of Egypt in order to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so with this calling and this understanding given to the people, God then says, I have called you to be my people. I'm here among you, and now I'm going to tell you what my people look like and what they do in order to remain in my presence. And This is a key theme that we need to recognize and understand. Because in this series going through Leviticus, we're going to be talking about the commands of God. We're going to be talking about the things that the Hebrews must do in order to be God's people. We're gonna talk about the ceremonial law which tells us things about God and foreshadows Jesus on the cross. But we're also gonna talk about moral law that still very much in many ways applies to us today. But take notice. God did not send this law into Egypt Egypt while the Israelites were still there. He didn't send it in there and say, here's my law, do this. And once you've done it perfectly, once you've got this all figured out, you've got a tabernacle in Egypt, and you're doing all the things, you're doing it right, you're not stealing, you're not murdering, you're not doing all this stuff. Once you've got that all right and all good, then I'll come for you. Then I'll come take you out of, out of Egypt. He calls his people first. He chooses them. And once he has brought them out of slavery, he then says, here now is how you ought to live. And if we jump ahead to the end of Exodus, the last four verses tell us that once the tabernacle and the place of dwelling for God is complete, God enters the tabernacle and Moses himself cannot enter it. Okay, they build the tabernacle, the place for God's dwelling, and Moses, who was on the mountain with God, saw God, he's already seen God's back, okay, because Moses asked to see God God said, you can't see my face for you, will die, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by. Now God is in the tabernacle and no Moses, you can't come in. Moses has to stay outside at the end of Exodus. And the reason is that even though the people have been given the majority of the moral code at the end of Exodus, the Ten Commandments and other things, They have not yet been told how they're going to approach God without dying, without being struck dead by way of sacrifices and atoning for sin. See, on Mount Sinai, God gives them commands, gives them a good and perfect code of conduct for the people of God to live by in order to be holy and set apart and not to be bound to the chains of slavery in which they had been brought out of and yet the Israelites are still left with this problem at the end of Exodus, that they can't enter into God's presence. And we're going to see in Leviticus that God then gives them the means to be in his presence. It means that we're going to see over the next few weeks reflect the work that Jesus ultimately does for us. <clears throat> However, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I just skipped like the last half of Exodus, so we're going to go back. There are three things that I want to point out is important for us to notice about the story of Exodus. And it's important and application for us today as we prepare to understand Leviticus and understand the blueprint that God gives for his people. First, if you go back to Exodus 16, you will see the beginning of God's provision for his people as he leads them towards the promised land. In Exodus 16, God starts to provide the Israelites with bread from heaven. The Israelites call it manna. Every week, manna falls for six days. And on the sixth day, because they're not supposed to work on the seventh, they're told to gather enough for two days so that they can have food for the sixth day and for seventh day. This provision from heaven starts in Exodus 16, as soon as they've left Israel, and it happens every single week for six days for the next 40 years. Every morning, the Israelites would wake up and there'd be bread on the ground. Every day, every week, God provided as the people awaited the taking of the promised land. Verse 31 of chapter 16 tells us that the people called it manna and that it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers with honey. I've often wondered, why? Why these details? Why white? Why wafers? Why honey? First of all, if you were to jump ahead to Numbers 11, 11, 11 verse 7, you see another description of manna in which it is said to have the appearance of bdellium. Now, what on earth is that? Have any of you... you know, I'm going to do this. Show of hands. Who's ever heard of bdellium? If you've read it in the two places in the Old Testament, you will have heard of it. Okay? That is how uncommon it is. Okay? The Hebrew word occurs only one other time in Genesis 2, Verse 12, during the description of the Garden of Eden. Bedelium was apparently a metal or an ore that resided in the Garden of Eden, and since we've never heard of it ever again, we can assume that it's not found outside of Eden. And so why was the manna white like bedellium? To give the people of Israel a taste of what they were going to. They were going to the promised land. They were going to dwell with God forever. They were going to back to Eden. Second, why wafers? Why did it taste like wafers? Well, this may be a bit of a stretch, and I'm not really a baker, but every single wafer recipe that I looked up on Google and Pinterest this week had either butter or milk in it. And I have never had a wafer, so I'm assuming it's creamy, okay? And what was the promised land supposed to be flowing with? With milk and honey. Well, what was the other thing that the manna tasted like? Do I need to explain it? (laughs) Okay, This bread that was on the ground every single day, except for the seventh day, but they still ate it on the seventh day. Every day, they ate a reminder of what they were going to. They ate a reminder of what God was leading them to. He was leading them back to his promised land, back to Eden. second thing that I want to point out about the story of Exodus is the giving of the Ten Commandments and the other moral laws. Again, God did not give this to his people in order that they could be his people. He gave it to them to follow because they were his people. People. The moral parts of the law, as we talked about at the beginning, have not been abolished. It was upheld by Christ, it was preached by the apostles. In the same way that Moses brought the moral law of God down from the mountain, Jesus stood on a mount and gave his famous Sermon on the Mount, in which he did not abolish the moral commands of God. He told the people that they must be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. He did not add to the law of God. He explained to his people what they had missed from the Pharisees telling them what the first giving of the law was all about. Any time in the, in the Sermon on the Mount when you hear Jesus say, you've heard it said, he's not referring to the Old Testament. He's referring to the teachers of the law at that time. He's saying, you've heard it said, this is all you have to do. But I'm telling you, they've missed the point. Don't just murder. Don't hate your brother in your heart. The law was not just supposed to be what you do outwardly. It was supposed to be about the inward heart. God gave the people specifics, but ultimately, as Jesus explained, all of God's law is contained within the two commandments, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. If we love God, we'll not worship idols or take his name in vain. And if we love our neighbor, we will not murder them or steal from them or commit adultery with them or covet what they have. This is the standard for a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And yet, as we'll see in Leviticus, God knows that his people will fail to live up to this standard. And so he provides a way out through sacrifices. Sacrifices. Sacrifices which are fulfilled by Jesus for all of mankind forever. And so, that we can boldly approach God. Over the last few weeks with the youth, we've been going through uh, 1 John. And when you read 1 John, it's like John is flipping back and forth between two sides of the same coin. Because he starts in chapter 1 and he says, If you say you are without sin, you're a liar. Okay, John, I'm a sinner. Thanks for telling me. But then later he says, we, by this we know that we love God if we keep his commandments for no one who loves God keeps on sinning. Hold on a second, John, pause, 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 pause. You just said, you just made me say that I'm a sinner so I'm not a liar, right? Okay, now you're saying that if I truly love God, I won't go on sinning, right? Does anybody else in the room see a problem with that potentially? What we worked through with the youth as we recognized is that John says, those who love God don't make a practice of sinning. You will still sin, but those who love God, who know and love his word, who love his law, when they realize what they're doing is sin, they won't make a practice of it any longer. They might still do it occasionally from time to time because their flesh and our sinful nature is still there but when we do it, we hate it because it's contrary to God's good law, a law that keeps us from heartache, from destroying our lives. And right after he says, if we say without sin, we're liars, right at the start of chapter 2 of 1 John, he says, if anyone does sin, so he assumes that people will still sin, if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so God gives his people in Exodus, he gives them this moral law. He says, this is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to order your lives, because it's good. It's a good way to order your lives. But if you do sin, which you will, you will, Israel, trust me, you will. Here's how you need to atone for it. Here is some sacrifices, here is ceremonial ways to show me that you have faith in me. But ultimately, you don't know this yet, my son is gonna pay for your sin on the cross one day. And so this leads me to the third and final aspect of Exodus for us to take note of. The tabernacle, what is with that? Why is it so intricate, okay? God leads Moses to spend chapters upon chapters on the intricate details, the measurements, and the laying of all of these pieces within the tabernacle. Why is God so specific about its construction? First, plain and simple, because it's the temple of God. It's his dwelling place. And if it's going to be his dwelling place, it ought to look a certain way. And what we learn from the New Testament is that we now as believers are that dwelling place. We are God's temple. God dwells within us. The temple's gone, it was destroyed in 70 AD. God does not dwell there anymore. He dwells within the hearts of his people. Jeremiah prophesied that that would be the case, that God would dwell in his people's hearts. And so God has dictated what our hearts ought to look like and has made our bodies to now reflect that tabernacle. However, on top of this, every single piece of the tabernacle is pointing forward to what is coming. From the cheap acacia wood walls overlaid with gold to represent the perfect, pure, God-like gold taking on human flesh, which because of sin... The human body is not what it once was. And yet Jesus takes on this feeble body, this human body, and yet he's purely God. To the four coverings of the tent, the innermost covering being fine linen, showing the beauty and righteousness of Christ. To the second covering made of goat skins to show how Jesus is our scapegoat, a practice given by God in believe it's in Leviticus, practice given by God in which the Israelites were to lay all of the sins of the people on the goat and send it out of the camp into the wilderness to send the sin out of the camp. To the ram's skin dyed red, which was the third covering, to symbolize the blood of Jesus. Also, if you remember from Genesis last week, what was the animal that ended up taking Isaac's place on the altar? It was a ram. And so we have ram skin dyed red covering the tabernacle. And the fourth and final covering, dirty brown badger skin. I haven't really seen I know there's badgers around here. I haven't really seen one yet. But some of you who have, you could probably tell me that badgers are not the nicest looking animals, and their skin probably is not that nice looking either. And yet, this was the outside of the tabernacle, this place of God's dwelling. And yet, it probably kind of looked ugly. But the reason was because it was not the outside of it that mattered. It was the reality of the inside of the tabernacle that mattered. The same way for us, it doesn't matter fully what our outside looks like. God doesn't look at the exterior. God looks at the heart. Now, I could explain every piece of the tabernacle to you and some of you may be willing to stay until two to hear it. But some of you want to have lunch yet today and want to get out before the storm maybe starts again. But I won't do that today. Okay? I want to leave you with something. You can... All of you, I'm hoping, can use Google. You can go home and you can look it up for yourself and you can see all the pieces of the tabernacle and how they relate to Christ, how they are pointing forward to what is to come. Because friends, Jesus has led us out of slavery to sin. He has seated us at the right hand of the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth is in his hands the tabernacle was pointing towards that. The ceremonial law in Leviticus, as we're gonna see, points towards that. Jesus is giving us daily bread as we prepare to take the promised land. He has given us his law to live good, joyous, sin-free lives, free from the slavery to sin, not totally free from sin, I'd be a liar if I said that, Thanks, John, for telling me that. But free from the slavery to sin. Jesus is leading us to the promised land. We now, as a church, are in this period of 40 years wandering in the wilderness, preparing to enter the promised land. Israel messed it up, but God has said, I'm going to return and I am going to lead you into the promised land. And when I do, There's not gonna be any exiles. There's not gonna be any turning from me. It will be finished, and you will dwell with me forever. He dwells with us now. His temple is here. He has called us to make disciples of all nations and teach them to observe these good laws, all that he has commanded us. God is calling his people to himself. He is calling us to be part of that work. As we march every day, closer and closer, back to Eden. Back to the state the world was in at the beginning. And even better, because in the beginning, it was Adam and Eve. And in the end, it's going to be all of God's people. He has prepared a place for us. We are his people. He has called us to this work, to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, taking the message of the gospel, the message of God's word to the nations. And if we have ears to hear and eyes to see, we will see the plan, the work, the calling that our God, who has already saved us, who has already saved us, who's already brought us out of slavery to sin, we will see what he is calling us to. So this morning, do you hear it? Do you see it? Bridgeway, we call ourselves his church. We call ourselves a family. We call ourselves his family. Are we? Because if we are, the scriptures tell us over and over and over again that we will listen. And he has told us to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That includes every single person in this room and that includes every single person out there that God has called. There is work to do. And he has prepared it for us to do. And he will help us to walk in it. I invite the worship team to come up, back up as I pray. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy above all others. You have called us to build your kingdom, and we cannot do that without your help and provision. And so your kingdom come and your will be done. Give us today our manna, our taste of Eden, and may it today give us the strength we need for the work set before us. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son who has paid our debts, so that we may be forgiven of our sins May we extend the same amount of forgiveness to others as you have shown it to us. Father, as we do the work that you've set before us, lead us not into temptation. Keep us from sin that so entangles and destroys us. Deliver us from evil and help us in the good works that you've set before us since the foundation of the world. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I invite you to stand with us as we sing one last song together this morning.